Well, good morning. Uh, well, I just want to add my words of thanks publicly, Mike, and the band. Um, this has been such a rich time of worship, prayer. Eight days after Easter makes so much sense for pastors. Um, the way Easter has fallen this time around has been, uh, this conference has been such a gift to me. We just finished our semester. Uh, I was downloading papers today to grade for my class on Hebrews. Um, but it's been a long year. Our family has moved. We've uh, tried to integrate our kids into new lives in Durham. Uh, I've taught two intense terms that have been a lot of fun but have stretched me and uh, this has just been water for my soul to come here and, and to worship. And then thank you for your hospitality. I have been just embraced as a newcomer, someone first time here. You all have welcomed me at the tables. You've taken me places, shown me your favorite sites in the, in the park and in Santa Cruz. It's just, uh, it's been marvelous. So thank you. Just wait. Well, you know, on that topic... On that topic, I, I'm, I'm morally certain that um, Ben has left a forwarding address, <laughs> so he'll certainly continue to get his mail at <laughs> the time to come. I put this up yesterday and then sort of thought it was self-evident. I forgot to mention it. We, someone was talking the other night about this new Psalter uh, that Martin Tell, my, my colleague, dear friend, uh, the music director, chapel director at, uh, at Princeton Seminary and John Whitfleet have edited together. I'm looking on the Amazon page right now. We've, we've actually sung out of this uh, much of the last year at Princeton that I was there. Um, but this volume, it's big. It's uh, pub published by Brazos, so it's not terribly expensive. Um, each psalm appears in the biblical text, including set out as responsive readings. Uh, there are responsorial settings for all the psalms in the Revised Common Lectionary. Uh, there are ideas for how to use the psalms in various worship settings. Um, the music chosen is, is, uh, spans the gamut from Taizé to, to gospel songs to spirituals to traditional hymns. Um, they have um, set the psalms, they say, in formats consistent with their content. They've, they've worked hard. Uh, there will be a musical setting of Psalm 137 or two in this volume. <laughs> um, there are also um, uh, settings for chanting and use in morning and evening prayer. Finally, they, they have great indexes. So anyway, um, I don't get any royalties on this book, but I would want a copy uh, in my home as, as a pastor, and you know, if the church can afford it and you, you use the Psalms regularly, it's, it's a rich um, collection of the church's music set around the Psalms. So anyway, that's the information. You can find it on Amazon really easily. Um, the last thing I was going to say, just about the worship. Mike, did you choose the images that have gone along with the songs? Who, who's responsible for them? Isaac. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, I would like to clap. I mean, just... Because the, the interplay of text and, uh, and music and image has, um, has really been rich. Um, this last uh, song that we sang um, is completely appropriate for the passage we're going to look at today. Uh, as 1 Peter 3 climaxes in the statement that Jesus sits above all powers and authorities, every ruler in heaven and earth. Um, but the, the painting of, of Christ rising uh, while his disciples are praying uh, and then seeing the face of Jesus look different and yet the same uh, was fantastic. 
I don't know if you've seen that there's a Time magazine cover, I think, a number of years ago. Was it Time or National Geographic? They sort of tried to reconstruct what a first century Palestinian Jew might look like. It's really different from the Scandinavian misty-eyed <laughs> Jesus, I'll tell you. Uh, it reminds me of a, a sign I saw um, on Stanley Hauerwas's door at Duke. It said, Obama is not a brown-skinned socialist who hates war and wants to give away free health care, you're thinking of Jesus. <laughs> okay, well, designed to offend everyone immediately in the morning, but uh, offensive in a really thoughtful way. It's fantastic. Well, we were talking yesterday about the so-called household table or household code, and the climax of this code is in chapter 3, verse 8, where we're going to pick up today. Um, Ben Patterson and I did not talk with one another ahead of the conference. I'm so grateful to have met him and sat under his teaching, but I can't believe the the Spirit's wisdom in bringing together his topic and 1 Peter, because in a, I think in a very significant way, it makes sense to me now after hearing Ben that never has before, 1 Peter is praying Psalm 34. Uh, This quotation that we're going to run into in verses 10 to 12 is only the tip of the iceberg. And one of the things I've done in your your booklet is give you a translation of the Greek version of Psalm 34. It's numbered Psalm 33 in the Greek text. Old Greek's just the the name that some people use for the, the Greek translations apart from the Pentateuch, saving Septuagint really for the the Pentateuch. But anyway, um, Peter quotes this in a form almost identical to the old Greek text that scholars have reconstructed from manuscripts. And um, you can just see down the right-hand margin places where I've suggested there's either a quotation or an allusion to the psalm. Uh, In some sense, 1 Peter is the product of meditating on praying this psalm in light of uh, Peter's concern for these communities and their life as hopeful witnesses on the margins. Uh, And uh, I think about that, you know, to find in Scripture itself an example of this appropriating of the prayers of the Psalms and offering them back to God and to the community as reflection on what it means to be God's people. So just to remind you that the the so-called household code started with an address to everyone. Um, And we'll Look back there really quickly in chapter 2, 11 and 12. I urge you, beloved, as aliens and strangers to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that they, though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. And then he's spoken to everyone the need to to honor those to whom honor is due, but to give fear to God alone and address then to to the lowest in the community, to the slaves, to the wives who are in a household where the husband does not obey the word. And Peter has made these supposedly lowest members the examples for everyone. He's elevated them to be the paradigm for what the community's life is called to be. In fact, he said, you are all slaves of God. And so you are all free, and so act as free people. There is a, a, a definite attempt in First Peter to accommodate to what society views as good, but there are definite limits. 
there is accommodation and there is resistance. And this resistance may well, Peter knows, bring suffering. He's adamant that that suffering needs to be revisioned, not as suffering as a wrongdoer, as someone worthy of being shamed, but as one, in fact, who walks in the path that Christ has already marked out for us. To suffer for the sake of Christ is to participate in the life of Christ, who not only set an example for us, but whose suffering for us has enabled a new life of righteousness in which we are now walking. And so as he comes to the close of this, he renews the address to everyone, all of you, have unity of spirit or unity of mind. Think the same way. Um, this is a, a, a root phronine uh, that has the notion of a kind of a practical wisdom. In the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, it's the, the verb, related verb that Paul uses when he says, have this mindset that you have because you are in Christ. And uh, my friend Stephen Fowle, a New Testament scholar, translates this paraphrastically as adopt a way of thinking, feeling, and acting, a mindset that is in keeping with the mindset that you see in Christ. So have unity of spirit, but that unity is defined by Christ, who is our life and in whom we live. He says, be sympathetic. Um, I love this when I'm teaching baby Greek. You, know, you all probably remember this, that, that in Greek, you love with your guts. We hate people's guts, but in Greek, I love you with my guts. So, you know, just to continue the, uh, the, the um, line in which I was walking yesterday somewhat dangerously, I, I always got a kick as a kid out of the King James Version when I'd find out that Jesus' bowels were moved um, at something or other. But that's up there. You know, the King James only folks, um, there's a, a, a sermon I saw on YouTube. I'm, I'm morally certain it was a parody, but, um, but the preacher was lamenting the loss of the King James uh, the, the great translation of the Hebrew idiom for male, he that pisseth against the wall, <laughs> and said, you know, this, this, this is the, losing the King James Version is the cause of the last loss of masculinity in the church. Men sit down to pee because they don't know that to be male is to stand. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, really, I'm pretty sure it was a parody. All right, so... I'm trying to make mail call easy for you guys today. <laughs> thanks, thanks. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Have the same heart for one another. Have a good heart toward one another. Be humble. This is also the, this root, phronine, phronesis. But have a lowly mind. Um, this is one place where the New Testament and early Judaism are completely out of step with Greek culture. Humility is not a virtue. Humility defines the slave. A free person would not, if called humble, that would not be a compliment at all. It would be a, a severe strike against someone's honor. Why, why are the Christians interested in being humble? Ultimately, I think it goes back to the story that Paul tells in Philippians 2 that Peter has narrated in 1 Peter 2. It's because that was how Christ was among us. 
He took the form of a slave. He acted in humility, humbling himself even to the point of a slave's death, death on the cross. So this community of Christ followers is to be humble. What is this going to look like in practice? Well, here Peter actually um, alludes to his telling of the Jesus story, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Remember what he said in chapter 2, when he was reviled, Jesus didn't give it back. When he suffered, he trusted himself to God who judges justly. Peter says, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. Again, because that's the way Christ lived. That is the life that we now share. He has taken our sin that we might live for righteousness. What does that look like? It looks like walking the way that Jesus walked. And then Peter says, um, quite the opposite. Don't return cursing or evil. Quite the opposite. Return a blessing. And um, here you hear the, the teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who curse you. Paul takes this as a mark of the community as well. Peter says, it's for this that you were called that you might inherit a blessing. And, you know, with this little phrase, I think the more we read these letters over and over and over, we see how, how much the author's thought is, is intertwined. Um, he's called us back right to the beginning of the letter. The letter is addressed to those who are elect, chosen, called saints of God. He has said in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, um, that the one who has called us is holy, and so our conduct is to be holy. And I, I think what he's describing here is what holy conduct looks like. He has said in chapter 2, verse 9, that we have been called as God's people out of darkness into God's marvelous light that we might declare God's virtues, God's excellencies, God's mighty deeds. In 2.21, he has said to the slaves and through them to the whole community, you have been called to suffer perhaps for doing what is right because Christ walked this way before you. And at the end of the letter, in his closing consolation and benediction, he reminds them that God is the one, the God of all grace, who has called you, after you've suffered a little while, to his eternal glory in Christ. God is the one, this one who called you, who will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To this you have been called, to be a blessing to inherit a blessing, to bless others. And then he quotes the psalm, a piece from the psalm from the middle, to underline the point that to be heirs of a blessing is to live in keeping with our inheritance. Those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In your book, I've collected together uh, a number of the, the texts where Peter hits this theme of doing good. If there's one sort of repeated phrase 
in this letter, it's do good, do good, do right, do what is right. Starts in 2.13, for the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human creation because the government officials are sent to praise those who do right. 2.15, it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. To the slaves in 2.20, if you endure when you do right and suffer, you have God's approval. To the wives, you have become Sarah's daughters as long as you do what is right and never let fears alarm you. Skipping down a little bit, 3.16, keep a good conscience so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct may be put to shame. I actually forgot uh, 2.11 where he uses kalos rather than agathos, but honorable conduct is the same idea. 3.17, it's better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. And I think far, sort of the capstone of exhortation in the letter let those suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator and continue to do good. Where does Peter get this idea that God is pleased by doing good? It's from this psalm. This is what it's going to look like to inherit life here and now is to live in that life by doing what is right. Those who do have the Lord's approval. Uh, I'm not going to go too far in this because there's a lot of ground to cover today, but when I go back to the psalm, in Greek in particular, notice there's, there's just a couple intriguing things. Why, why did Peter land on this psalm? I don't know, um, but verse 5 says in Greek, I sought the Lord and he heard me, and from all my sojournings he rescued me. Peter addresses his churches as sojourners, paroikoi. This psalm is one that speaks of a sojourner delivered in those wanderings by God. There's um, one other thing. If you look down to verses 10 to 12, no, tw sorry, 12 to, 12 to 15, 16. This is the section that Peter is quoting in 10 to 12. Look down at verse 17. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There's a parallel line that Peter doesn't quote to destroy the remembrance of them from the earth. This is intriguing. One of my students pointed out to me in a, in a paper uh, this last semester, could it be significant, for Peter at least, that he stops where he does? And, and would it tell us something about how Peter imagines this community's calling in relationship to God's plan for those still outside the community? And I, I think it's intriguing. On the one hand, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Those who persecute you will answer to God the judge. But will your persistence in doing good perhaps allow them to glorify God when God appears? To recognize that in fact your life is a witness to the goodness and grace and mercy of God who became human in order to enable all humans to flourish. Might they be brought to faith by your good works, just as the wives might win their unbelieving husbands, so that it's not certain in this time between the time that those who are now evildoers will be extirpated from the earth. They may well be our brothers and sisters when the last day comes. 
And I think this attitude is actually one of the things that makes the early Christians deeply threatening to the Romans and to the, to the various cities and towns in which they lived. Um, Jews had a hard time under the Roman Empire, and even more so in the local cities where they lived. In fact, the Herod the Great and his father Antipas, um, um, Antipater, sorry, um, were, were really key in supporting Julius Caesar and then Octavian in their wars. And so um, Jews were given very special privileges throughout the empire. They were allowed to meet when other secret societies were uh, banned. They were uh, protected from being dragged into court on the Sabbath. They were generally exempted from military service because they couldn't participate in the religious dimension of a cohort. Uh, if there were public doles of grain, we have inscriptions Josephus gives us saying, telling the cities, if you're going to dole out grain on the Sabbath, you need to make arrangements to give it to the Jewish community on another day. And in fact, you need to give them market space so that they can sell their own food. Um, it wasn't popular in a lot of these local areas. I, I mentioned the other day the, the, perhaps the most unpopular ruling, which is you can't molest these people as they take their ta temple tax money back to Jerusalem. If you confiscate that, it's like robbing a temple. It's, you're gonna, that's a capital crime. So when war breaks out with Rome in 67, um, Josephus tells us that even though um, Jews outside the land of Israel did not participate many of them became um, victims of mob violence as people in these Greek cities turned on the Jews in their midst because they were out of favor now with the Romans. But the early Christians um, were not, I, on the one hand, an old community that could at least appeal to ancient traditions. They were also not the kind of people who kept to themselves. They were actually attracting Romans. Um, which the Jews did also, but not apparently in the numbers that the early Christians did. So now you have a group that says, we're foreigners, we're strangers. Our emperor is the God of heaven and earth. We fear only him, though we'll continue to honor you. And why don't you join us? <laughs> why don't you join us? And that's the threat, that you might join us, that those now persecuting us might become our brothers and sisters. And, um, and that appears to increase the pressure. And Peter doesn't back off from that. He doesn't say disengage. In fact, it will cause suffering, but you continue to do what is right and trust God. And that is amazing. That's why we're all here today. I, I, I love the stories. I've heard a number of stories about Henrietta Mears this weekend. It's amazing to me. Just a, a life lived for others, a, a a joy in Christ that just overflows, and then the, the people that are affected by that. You know, Peter's not talking about dramatic witness as, you know, stand up in the forum and proclaim Christ and harangue everybody who comes along. He's talking about people living their daily lives in such a way that people see there's something there I want. Peter says, in fact, that we ought to expect, if we're eager to do good, that there will be no one to harm us. And, you know, he's writing to a, a, a pretty vast area, and I think he seriously means this, that, that not everybody is going to suffer, that in fact we ought to have the confidence to, to live out there as those eager to do good to our neighbors. But, he says, 
Verse 14, even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. You've been called to inherit a blessing. That calling is secure even if you suffer as those who do what is right. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. This is just what he said to the wives with unbelieving husbands. Again, they're an example for what the whole community is called to. In your hearts, rather, sanctify Christ as Lord and always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. What is Peter envisioning here? You may suffer for doing what is right, and you may be called to account. Some would limit this to the sort of neighbor asking neighbor, what in the heck is going on with you? Why didn't you come to the festival yesterday? But I think um, this language is open to being read as being called to account by people in charge, being called to account before the governor. And when he says make a defense, he uses the word for a courtroom defense, an apology. The apology of Socrates is Socrates' speech before the Athenians in his defense. And to demand an accounting is the right of these government officials. You may be put in a place where you can't avoid answering the question, are you for Caesar or are you for Jesus? And if so, be ready to account for the hope that is in you. You've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power until the salvation that is ready to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes is, is yours. Be ready to make an account. Um, I often read um, verse 15 as a kind of let your actions speak louder than your words, and in your heart sanctify Christ. You actually will find New Testament scholars arguing that Peter is saying, oh, go ahead, go through the motions, sacrifice to the emperor. In your heart, you've sanctified Christ. Which I, I, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work in the context. It's plainly a bad reading, but you can still get published if you're smart enough to, 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 to put it out there in an interesting way. Um, Peter is uh, drawing language here actually from Isaiah 8. It might be italicized in some of your Bible translations. We looked at this passage yesterday briefly. In Isaiah 8, uh, let me just remind you what it says. Verse 11, the Lord spoke to me, Isaiah, while his hand was strong upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what it fears or be in dread or be intimidated. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread, and he will become your sanctuary. But a stone of stumbling for those who oppose themselves to God. Peter is saying, don't be afraid. It could be translated, don't be afraid of them. Or don't be afraid of what they fear, that is their gods. And I, I think in a sense that's a distinction without a difference because ultimately Pliny, the governor, Trajan, the emperor, are representatives of the council of the gods in whose hands they believe rests the peace of the empire. Not to fear 
the representatives of Rome is not to fear the gods of Rome. Don't fear what they fear, but in your hearts, and I take this not to be as opposed to out in public, but in the very deepest center of yourself, sanctify Christ as Lord. Notice how Peter has taken this text about the Lord, this tetragram, the the special name of God, the Lord of hosts, and here it is Christ who is Lord. Peter has no trouble taking a text that spoke about the God of Israel and finding in it legitimately a reference to the God known through Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Here's another just interesting thing if you're reading Psalm 33 in Greek. Verse 9 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter has, has alluded to that or partially quoted it, right? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you're pronouncing this the way a Greek speaker in the first century would have pronounced it, um, it would be something like, the Lord is Christos. Christos means good, kind. Christos is the anointed one, the Messiah. Spelled slightly differently, but pretty much pronounced the same. There's actually an early textual variant um, that has Christos, Christ, rather than Christos, kind or good. Um, Whether an intentional reading or whether a confusion of sound, but I think the point is that to a Greek hearer of this text, it's a wordplay that's obvious. Taste and see that Christ is good. In your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. And so be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. I I love the emphasis here. Make a defense for your hope. Why are you living the way you do? He's not saying go into a tirade at how terrible all these Gentiles are, how corrupt their culture, how bankrupt their idolatry. Talk about your hope. Talk about why you are in love with Jesus Christ. Tell about what God has done for you. I mean, that is the most attractive witness that we have. It's the kind of witness that flows out of the worship that we've been sharing. You know, and, and I'm challenged with this. I'm, I'm a pretty introverted person normally. When I go to the grocery store, I want to buy my groceries. And, uh, and, I, and I'm, I try to be kind to people and smile and talk to them. But I'm a little nervous about letting them know that the reason why I'm joyful is because I know Jesus. Um, I can imagine saying to a fellow Christian on campus at Duke, and they say, how are you? Saying, you know, fundamentally, I'm sound because my sins are forgiven. I'm not sure I'm going to say that at the checkout line at Whole Foods, but maybe I should. Go for it. Oh, this lovely saint in our church back in Princeton, uh, Sharon Marshall, just overflowed with this kind of of love. She just couldn't help bumping into somebody literally at Home Depot and then talk she'd end up talking to him about the Lord. And wow. Okay, so what do I need to do? I'm not I don't have her personality, but I can hang out with Sharon and I can I can learn some of this, but I can also meet her friends. You know, evangelism is a corporate activity. Some of us aren't great at meeting people, but some of us know how to brew beer, right? And so you bring your friends and I'll teach them how to brew. Um, I think small groups, especially for those who are really hesitant and terrified about sharing our faith, you know, to have a small group where you say, let's just all invite our friends and let's have a potluck and let's get to know each other. 
And somewhere along the line, everybody's gift is going to be used in bearing witness to that hope. So, I don't know, this, this text pushes me here. This is one of these buttons it pushes with me. Um, you know, do I really want to live out loud in that positive sense? Or am I, am I just going to keep it to myself? And, and Peter's saying this to people who are really going to most of the time be, put themselves at risk to live out loud. It's not, nobody's going to hurt me. They might look at me. They might think poorly of me not going to hurt me. Um, I'm, I'm so amazed at the impulse that you find in these early churches. Um, I, I've puzzled, uh, along with Daryl Guder and others, why there aren't more explicit commands in the New Testament writings for local churches to evangelize. But perhaps it's because they just did it. They didn't have to be told. Um, you find Paul planting churches. He's got a team. He's an apostle. He understands himself to have a, a very particular role. But then he leaves an area and says, okay, my work's done. And those churches continue to spread. The message continues to spread. And it's not the religious professionals who do it. In the second century, Celsus, um, whose writings we only have because Origen decided to answer his tirade against Christianity, says Christianity is a religion of slaves and women and children. Those are the people running around telling other people about Jesus. Um, yeah, what would, it, what would it take for us, as for our communities, to become places where hope overflowed so that people asked, why are you like you are? Or what would it take for us to be places that preached a message that seemed so dangerous that someone might call us to account? Why are you saying these things? Why are you preaching this message about a king, another king, Jesus? Um, well, do this, Peter says in verse 16, with gentleness and fear. Gentleness is uh, that word that we encountered yesterday. Wives ought to adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit. You know, I said this is not a feminine virtue in the sense that it's the job of women to be this way and not men. It's, this is how Jesus described himself. And gentleness is actually one of those virtues widely recognized in the Greco-Roman world as the characteristic of the self-controlled elite male. Um, Plutarch, who's a, a priest at Delphi, a philosopher, he's the guy who wrote the advice to the bride and groom that I read from yesterday, has a, a really interesting treatise on why doesn't God punish the wicked quickly? Uh, why does the divine vengeance delay? And he's actually answering someone, he calls an Epicurean, who says, well, it's because the gods don't care. And Plutarch is one of these guys who, who, who loves to show off how much he's read and how much he knows. But for us, he's great because he's collected all the answers that he's aware of in this really deep cultural history going back to Plato and before. But he loves to tell, one of his answers is, you know, we look at a person who flies off the handle with anger and we say they're not, they're subject to passion. They're not self-controlled. Uh, he tells a story about um, some guy, I can't remember the name, um, comes in from, from being away and finds his slaves kind of living it up and, uh, and they're, they're just, they weren't expecting him and they're terrified and he comes in and he says, you're lucky, I'm angry and walks away, because I can't punish you while I'm angry. 
he's got this gentleness. Well, this other story tells, I think it's about Plato, who, who for a very long time held the staff up in the air until he could master his emotions <laughs> before he then administered the beating. <laughs> like, okay, well, it is a different world. Um, but gentleness, again, you know, I just I appreciate the, the transparency I've encountered here. Uh, people, you all are, are real. You're being real with one another. And, you know, Ben was so vulnerable last night in, in answer to a question to talk about, uh, and I unfortunately can relate to this, to anger and to, and to how over time with God's goodness, but also in community with his wife and others, um, he has become a gentle person. And we all recognize that as, man, that's attractive. Man, that looks like Jesus. And so this witness is, again, you know, this isn't, I, I admire Martin Luther. Here I stand. God help me. But Martin Luther is not perhaps the best paragon for this kind of witness. It's a bold witness. It's a witness that will not compromise, that's willing to die rather than worship Caesar. But it's going to be gentle. It speaks with blessing rather than cursing. Um, I was talking with, with Mike earlier, Stanley Hauerwas, who's written a lot, very compellingly, about Christian commitment to nonviolence as being essential to discipleship of a crucified Messiah. He says, I need to talk a lot about pacifism because I'm such a violent SOB. You all need to hold me accountable because I can't do this. I can't live this way. And there are, you know, heroic saints, thank God for them, but most of us need a community that's going to help us be gentle, that's going to help us bless when we just feel like cursing. It's going to heal some of the wounds that we experience so that we can turn outward with the grace of Christ. It's going to help us confess the bad stuff we've done so that we can hopefully forgive those who've done bad stuff to us. Right? Um, so witness is communal in 1 Peter. It's modeled after the pattern of Christ. Having a good conscience is, in fact, for the sake of witness because it may be that those who speak ill of you will be ashamed when they see your good conduct in Christ. I think this is not just eschatological. I think Peter holds out the hope that by reacting with gentleness and blessing when we receive cursing and wrong, that others might actually be converted, <laughs> that they might see and recognize. That's in God's hand. But Peter says in verse 17, it's better if it should be God's will for you to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. Why is this? Again, he tells the story of Jesus. But here now with a new twist. Because remember, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous or the just one, the innocent one for the guilty, the unjust. So that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but that wasn't the last word. He was made alive in the spirit. And now 1 Peter gets really strange. In which spirit, he went to the spirits that are in prison and proclaimed a message to them. These spirits who disobeyed long ago while the patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. 
the sentence keeps going, but I just want to stop here. What in the world is he talking about? <laughs> now, I mean, the general point of this, how does this fit in the sermon? I don't think it's that hard to see. God waiting patiently during the most corrupt period on earth's history. Think about the story of Noah. Evil is increasing. He can only find one guy and a family to save out of all the people on the earth. God is actually grieved that he created humankind. This is, uh, talk about unjust society. The earth has never seen anything like this. But God patiently waited during this long period until that ark was prepared. Why is it taking so long for Jesus to come back? We pray, how long has the church prayed, thy kingdom come? Why isn't he coming back? When Second Peter says uh, there are people making fun of the Christians, show us some sign of his coming. When's it going to happen? Come on. Well, these spirits who disobeyed at this time were the subjects of an announcement. They received an announcement, not the subject, the object of preaching, proclamation. Christ did this after he was made alive in the Spirit. And if you read all the way to the end of the chapter, um, we get, it ends with, um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. What psalm is that, by the way? Psalm 110, right? I didn't want to show off last night, but I knew Psalm 110 was the most (laughs) quoted psalm in the New Testament. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is built on Psalm 110. It's great. So anyway, um, Jesus has entered heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers under his feet, made subject to him. But we're supposed to be subject to every human creation, to the emperor, to the governors, to heads of household, to slave owners, but everything is subject to Jesus, not only the earthly powers, but the heavenly powers behind the throne. So who are these spirits in prison? One line of interpretation is that this is that evil generation of human beings who lived in the time of Noah. And why is Jesus preaching to them in particular? I don't know. Is he offering the gospel? Or is he saying, nah, nah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I won. Uh, I, I don't think, for, for the reason I just can't make sense of why this particular generation, unless he just wants to get Noah on the page somewhere, I, I think that, that these are human spirits is not as persuasive as the other major explanation um, that has been kind of the dominant one since William Dalton wrote a dissertation on this decades ago. Um, there, is a, there is a lot of early Jewish literature that is really interested in one of the most puzzling texts in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 6, we're told that the sons of God went into the daughters of humanity and had children and that these children were giants on the earth. And then that leads right into the, and everything was so wicked, God decided to destroy the earth with a flood. Um, And so there's a a lot of literature that grows up around the figure of Enoch. Uh, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who walks with God and is not because God took him. Well, so you may, and you may have read bits of First Enoch. Um, There are several Enochic books. They predate Christianity, or at least for the most part of what we have now as First Enoch predates Christianity. Um, Enoch is referred to, uh, alluded to in 2 Peter and Jude. and I think the, the story that Enoch tells is, the, the, is in the imagination of the author as he talks about Jesus. 
So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, although I don't know, that Peter tr treated Enoch as Scripture. I, I don't, just don't have any evidence one way or the other. Um, Enoch is found in, um, in Qumran, and uh, it's taken up into uh, a book called Jubilees, which does seem to be, uh, it's, it's in a lot of copies at Qumran. It may well have been taken as authoritative Scripture in some circles of Judaism. Um, we don't have enough evidence to see any of the New Testament authors treating Enoch the way that they treat Deuteronomy. It doesn't ever make it into the canon. Here, although it's in the canon in the Church of Ethiopia, it's in the New Testament in Ethiopia. And most of our copies are in Ethiopic, which I don't read, so I'll only read this in translation. Um, and there are versions of some of these legends elsewhere among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Basically, the story goes like this. The sons of God are understood as a, as a and you can find parallels in, in Scripture for this, as angels. The angels, the, the sons of God. And that these are angels who violated the created order and had sex with women and who spawned a race of giants. There's some interesting contacts with the, the legend, Greek legends about the Titans. Um, these giants taught human beings all kinds of technology and all kinds of wickedness. And the flood came to destroy them. And it destroyed their bodies. And these wicked angels were locked up into prison for the day of judgment to come. But the spirits of these giants continue to roam the earth, and they possess human beings. These are the daimons, the demons. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of grappling with where does evil come from. And it's a way of grappling with the persistence of evil, even after the flood. A way of saying that evil is more than just what human beings do, that there's a spiritual component, that these other gods, these so-called gods, these demons, uh, their hatred for humanity is pretty obvious. They've lost their bodies. Uh, God has gone, gone on on the side of the humans and gotten rid of them, and so they're just persisting and doing as much evil as they can. But also, their defeat is certain because God has already locked up the disobedient angels for the day of judgment. And the giants themselves are just a shadow of what they used to be. They're... Um, there's a, a way of honoring the presence of evil while saying, we live in the already not yet. God's victory in the past is the guarantee of God's victory in the future. If something like this is behind this, then I think what Peter is doing is something like saying, just as we have this story about Enoch, who, who by the way, then, as he's taken up into heaven, is given a tour of the cosmos, and he's sent to proclaim to these spirits in prison that they're going to be judged. And, and interestingly, they send him with a petition to God for forgiveness, and God sends Enoch back and, with the message, no way. It's just, it's done. Um, is, is this poetic? Is this somehow, is Enoch seen as a type of Christ? I don't know exactly how to sort all that out. But if Christ on the way to ascension is passing through the heavens... I think the implication is that he's announcing his reign and the decisive defeat of evil. Jews would have recognized that behind Rome as behind Persia and Babylon stood angelic powers. You see this in the book of Daniel where Michael, the angel, is delayed coming to Daniel with an answer from God because he's delayed by the prince of Persia uh, opposing him in the heavenly realm. And the Romans, of course, believe this in their own version Roma and Jupiter and all of the other gods, including the deified Julius and the deified Augustus, 
they are all in the heavens guaranteeing our rule on earth. Well, Jesus has just gone to these spirits, defeated by God long ago, and announced that their doom is sure. He has been exalted to the highest place, and all of these angels and principalities and powers are under his feet. How much more than those who persecute you? How much more will they be called to account before the judge of all? Uh, it's hard now to know, how do, you, how do you preach something like this? Because this is not our mythology, um, but it is a deeply biblical mythology, and especially um, in terms of the Second Temple Jewish way of coming at the problem of evil. It's, I think it's active for a lot of people. Um, I think we're called to translate something like this, and there's lots of ways to translate it, but the, the basic point is there is no power of hell or scheme of man that can ever pluck me from his hand. Um, the way the song gets it. That's not a bad translation of what Peter is up to. I think at a certain point, um, we all have probably encountered people in our congregations or elsewhere who get a little bit too curious about this stuff, and they want to know more, and, you know, that, this is all I got, so. <laughs> not that any of you are like that, but, but I think, you know, we hate to miss the forest for the trees. Jesus is Lord. In any way that's meaningful in our culture to stress that Jesus is the ultimate judge and Savior, and that our judge is our Savior. That's the point of this. So yes, it's better to suffer for doing good because even that suffering is in the hands of the one who holds all power. What was God doing uh, in waiting all that time? Well, he prepared an ark, and Peter says, in that ark, a few, eight souls in all, were saved through water. And all this prefigured baptism, the water of death that saves you, that becomes the water of new life. This is a really uh, fascinating way of thinking about what is it to live in the time between the times. We're like Noah and the family kept by God, um, brought out of death into new life, living in a time when God seems to be way too patient, but God's patience is, patient is so that he can save us. And uh, as it says elsewhere in the New Testament, God is not willing that any should perish. So God's not dragging his feet for any reason except that he wants to save and restore and win those who are lost. Well, that brings us to the end of a chapter, and that's probably a good time to, to, to stop. Why don't, why don't we take about, uh, if, if there's five or so minutes of questions, and then we'll, we'll take a break and we'll have a longer time for questions at the end. Thanks, Scott, for grabbing the, the mic. Okay. Oh, there's one over there, too. <laughs> okay. Wait again? Uh-huh. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Okay, great. So I've got one. Okay. Uh, can you... So a short answer is fine. All right, yeah. You sort of already went there. Um, he descended to the dead. Yeah. Can you sort of reflect on the Apostles' Creed in this passage? Yeah. Um, my short answer is wait till the next hour. Because the, the passage that, that, that is read in the lectionary on Holy Saturday, we're going to get to. It's the first, first six verses of chapter four. Um, and I'll just say t now that, that in the history of interpretation, um, chapter four, verse six, 
is often read as talking about the same thing as the passage we just looked at, I'm convinced they're talking about different things. Um, but that's a decision I've made as an interpreter, and, and sometimes this is seen. I, here, I think, if, 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 there's a great article by Howard Marshall a long time ago on this passage. Um, no, it's not Howard Marshall, someone else. It's in a collection of his. Um, but the trajectory is Jesus is put to death, made alive by the resurrection and ascends. And it seems to me that this preaching is on the way to God. Um, it's a, and, and I think what's going on in chapter 4 speaks perhaps to the question of what, what about before the resurrection? So, great question. Could, um, could you say something more about, about the supernatural mythology? Because um, the time of Christ, demonic possession was an, a regular thing. And I'm wondering if there was some overlap with um, uh, you know, borrowed mythology from Zoroastrianism in Persia. And, or if when they did, did exorcisms, were they... Was there clear understanding that they were casting out these former sons of God? Well, that's a great question, and I, I actually don't know much about this. Um, I, I do think that there's, there's a lot of cultural borrowing and influence. So, I mean, Israel is exiled to Babylon, and then Babylon falls to Persia. And a lot of people see some strong influence from Iranian religion, Zoroastrianism, on Second Temple Judaism. When you try to drill down and show exactly what those are, it becomes a little more difficult. But the, the increasing dualism in, uh, in apop- apocalyptic theology may have some influence from, from Iran. It certainly, I think, also has, uh, has a lot to do with the political situation of the Jews um, who are now, they've, they've, de- they've dealt with the idolatry thing. They're keeping God's law, and they're still oppressed by these massive empires. Um, and I think that presses a kind of dualistic thinking temporally and ethically. And um, What did they think? Is it, uh, my colleague Lauren Stuckenbrook, who's now at Munich, has, has written a lot about this. Um, and, and most of what I know I've learned through him. And so I'm probably going to garble important things. But um, there's definitely, this is not the only account of where the demons come from. But it does seem to have its tentacles into lots of other later literature. Um, and we, we get developing traditions, uh, just back to the Psalms for a second, of, of David. You think about the, the story about David singing when the evil spirit would come on Saul. Well, David and Solomon both were understood to have been exorcists who composed songs for driving out demons. And among the Dead Sea Scrolls are some of these uh, prayers and songs. So from an anthropological perspective, um, this is not uncommon, especially among colonized peoples, that, that, um, that there's seen to be a kind of spiritual dimension to the, the, the political and, and physical oppression. Um, you know, we Westerners tend to say that's projecting or that's, you know, we give some explanation that makes sense to us, but I'm, I think it's one of, the, one of the gifts to the church worldwide of, of the growing strength of Christianity in the, in the majority world is that it's going to be harder for us, I think, to, to just tell ourselves the modernist story, that this is all mythology. There really is something there. Um, yeah. But if, if you're interested in this, um, to, to, to Google Lauren Stuckenbrook. I can spell his name for you if you want. But Lauren's written quite a lot on um, both ancient theories of evil, but also on, on how it, it ought to make us think. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Great, one more question, and I'll let you all get some coffee and bathroom and stuff like that. So in chapter 2 and in, in chapter 3, he talks 
to people about suffering for doing good and keeping your nose to the grindstone and just, uh, you know, keep at it and work, work, work. And then he says in chapter three, but be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within you. In my reading, it, it almost seems like he says, you know, you have a lot of things you could complain about. And particularly in our context, uh, we see Christians who want to talk about social injustices that they're suffering, uh, slaves, servants, all these social issues. So could you comment on to what degree you think Peter is saying, hey, you know what, you really need to stop looking at all of your problems and uh, focus on giving a defense for the hope that is within you. It's a little bit of a stark contrast and yeah. contrived, right. but if you could just speak right. to that. Yeah, well, I, maybe I appreciate you raising this because this is, this is a major, use the big word, hermeneutical issue. And in, in what does it mean for us to receive a text like this when we live in a far different society? Um, I mean, there, there is really not much chance of slaves in the ancient world changing their position at all. And these communities are small, and um, Miroslav Wolf says, their strategy of accommodation and resistance and witness from within. If you think about how subversive it, it is that these wives are bringing Christianity into households where the, the head of the household is not a believer. I mean, the church is spreading in subversive ways. But to directly attack these structures, first of all, doesn't seem to be in the imagination of, of almost anybody in the ancient world. Slavery is as, as much a fact as uh, interest, loaning on interest in ours. Can you imagine an economy without interest? Um, people couldn't imagine an economy without slaves. But we don't live in that setting. So, you know, do we look at the New Testament counsel to keep your head down and do good as kind of underwriting our own prescinding from political issues, or, you know, and this is where our, our churches really are, I wouldn't even say divided, but people have different gifts and different perspectives. Are we called because we can change things based on what we know about the kingdom of God to do all that we can as part of our hopeful witness to end human trafficking, to uh, end abusive spouses? I, I was reading the New York Times today, there's a, a growing movement finally in the government to end rape on campuses. You know, I mean, are these things that the church needs to be able to speak on in order to bear testimony to our hope? And if so, how does that fit with all the other things that we're called to do? Um, because we, I mean, you know, we just look at our own history. There's, there are some marvelous moments where um, fervor for the gospel is wedded to uh, fervor for social justice but it's really easy to fall off um, that balance in different ways. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll say that in, in a way of saying I think you've, you've put your finger on a really important issue, and you've offered to, um, it as a question, and I'll kind of leave it that way. I think we really have to struggle with it. Um, I'm, I'm more and more of the persuasion, though, that, that to appropriate texts like the household code in Peter involves us in, in quite, a, quite an imaginative task of um, what Richard Hayes calls analogical thinking or metaphor making, if we don't simply live in this structure, what does it look like for us to live this way in our, in our society? And what would witness look like for a, 
a church that still has quite a lot of power. I've been talking about us being on the margins, but we're, look at this place around us. I mean, we've got a lot of resources. What does it mean to use those in a way that honors Christ? So that's the question.